for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series in all other categories. HBO's original limited series, I May Destroy You, starring Michaela Cole, is set in London, where gratification is only an app away. The story centers on Arabella, played by Michaela Cole, a carefree, self-assured Londoner with a group of great friends, a boyfriend in Italy, and a burgeoning writing career. But when her drink is spiked, she must question and rebuild every element of her life. All episodes now streaming on HBO Max. We're here with F9 screenwriter Dan Casey on Crew Call, who talks about reinvigorating the Fast and Furious franchise. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Welcome, Dan. Tell me about how the project came to you. Did you pitch Justin first? Did you pitch Universal first? Uh, I pitched Justin first. Um, it was it was unique uh, in that regard, in that, uh, you know, normally for for larger projects, uh, when you go into pitch, you're pitching anywhere between three to five uh, folks at a, at, a, at a studio or a production company. Uh, with this, with uh, with Fast Nine, yeah, uh, Justin wanted to be out front. I think he assembled his own list of writers to bring in and to pitch to him directly. And uh, you know, I was I was one of those guys, and 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 I got the job. It was. Uh, it was really, it was, it was a really intimidating pitch to go right to the director. I, uh, I wasn't used to it. What was the hook? Uh, the hook for the pitch. Um, I would, you know, the, the hook for my pitch. It was again, you know, nothing, nothing about getting the job for Fast Nine was, uh, was, was reg, was, was ordin, was, was ordinary. Um, the thing about this job was that uh, in pitching it, I was actually pitching Justin on his own document. Um, Justin had written up a, uh, a, a four to five page long story document with, uh, with a collaborator that he, he works with regularly, a, a, a really great guy named Alfredo Botello. And, um, and so there was a document that, uh, that I was asked to review before going into pitch. And in that document uh, was the basis for the idea that became John Cena's character, the, uh, the long lost brother. So these things were kind of attached to the idea when I came in. And I, you know, I, it's, it's very easy to get in your head about big studio assignments when, when you go in to pitch on them and, um, and to get really nervous and to kind of just want to attack the entire scope of it. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've failed more times than I've succeeded uh, career-wise when it comes to pitching. And, um, and so as I was going in, I thought about it and I, I, I was just kind of going, all right, I'm going to pitch to Justin Lin. And Justin Lin had made my favorite Fast and Furious movies personally so far, uh, you know, of the entire series. And I go, the thing about, I mean, this is just my, my internal process, right? And I was thinking, you know, the thing about Justin is that Justin got his start uh, as, as a Sundance filmmaker, you know, uh, with, uh, with Better Luck Tomorrow, right? And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm kind of going to, like, I don't know that I necessarily need to go into a pitch for Fast and Furious 9 and pitch Justin Lin a bunch of action sequences. I don't need to tell Justin Lin about how fast cars work or, you know, how important it's going to be to, like, up the stakes for the new one. I think I, I just kind of went in knowing that Justin was probably already going to be aware of these things. And so when I went in, I, I kind of had a lopsided pitch. I, uh, 
uh, I had read the document, and again, you know, the 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 basis for the character that became John Cena's character was there. And so when I went in, I actually just kind of pitched Justin on a bunch of ideas for, you know, emotional, um, you know, family and turmoil type storylines. You know, what places that we could take, you know, the relationship between the character Dom and the character Jacob, and uh, a lot of it, I I, I think. <laughs> I was I was worried that I was going to make it really awkward because um you know I I have this big messed up Irish Catholic family from Detroit that is you know amazing and wonderful and also you know that they're all fairly traumatized you know in the, in their own ways and and uh, and so I I went in and I kind of told him about my family and I said I feel like I understand this character Jacob you know even though we're working within the proscenium of big Hollywood I kind of feel like I I know where he's coming from emotionally. And I think that, that that may have been the thing that got me through and, uh, and got me the job. There, there were other things that I pitched, but I remember that um, I, I, I said, I'm going to go in and I'm going to pitch him on the heart of this thing, on how complicated it could be between, you know, John Cena's character, Jacob and, and Ben. And, uh, and, and lo and behold, I got the job. It was, it, was, it was incredibly surreal. And that is what is just as intriguing about uh, in addition to the car, the car chases in this, which are mind blowing, mm-hmm. is the is the characters. We just, you know, we continue to love them, and this going into Dom's backstory with his brother was just, I mean, it was just brilliant and grounded and real, and you believed it. Let me ask you, Han and the resurrection yeah. of Han. That was something that the fans were screaming yeah. for and also upset about how did you guys work that back in? Because that's a tricky thing to bring someone back from the dead. It was, it was a process that involved a lot of baby steps really, because, um, uh, you know, going into the movie and actually that, that was, that was something else that kind of came up in the pitch was, you know, I, I was really aware. I, I, I follow social media and the blogs and stuff like that. I think I follow, <clears throat> I think I follow that stuff uh, even a little bit more than Justin Lin does. And, th- and that's just because he's a far more professional and busy person than I am. But like, uh, I, I'd been aware of the justice for Han kind of like online movement, the, the hashtag for a while. And I always thought there was, there was just, it made a lot of sense, you know, and, um, and that's not to go pointing the finger at anybody, but, uh, you know, sometimes these things happen and uh, beloved characters can kind of be misserviced, even when the best intentions are involved. And, and that was just, that was just kind of my feeling on it. So when we went in um, very quickly, we kind of got to Han and you know, your early discussions about how to put movies together tend to be incredibly kind of structure oriented, you know? And then as you get into the specifics of what you really wanna hit, that's when you begin to kind of like mess with the rules and mess around with time and jump around. And, you know, Han's resurrection involves some flashback scenes and and it became a kind of a, a, a tricky dance, this prospect of bringing Han back alive. So our, our the first iteration of bringing Han back and kind of, you know, setting, setting down the road of finding justice for Han, because I, I, I agree. I think that justice for Han is still something that needs to come in, you know, movie 10 and movie 11, but just in the process of bringing him back, which I, I, I was really excited to do. What we actually started with uh, were, were time jump scenes that would show him back when he was still alive, but we weren't going to bring him back from the dead. 
you know. So it was it was kind of like a baby steps process. You know, we we were going to introduce the character L, which is played by uh, Aunt, uh, Anna Sawai, and um, and at first the idea was that she was going to be the only person, the only character that we were going to bring into the mix, and that she was going to kind of continue Han's legacy. And then we just got closer and closer to pre-production, and I remember, you know, you. The thing about the Justice for Han movement is that uh, the coverage on it not, never really stopped. There was always a steady trickle of, you know, discussion about the fate of the character Han that was online. And so as we got closer to shooting, you know, we were in London in pre-production and I was reading articles about, you know, Justice for Han and, 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 and why the character kind of deserved better. You know what I mean? And uh, I would read them to Justin and Justin would get fired up. And then actually the, the, thing, that, the thing that kind of closed the deal on actually bringing Han back to life, uh, it actually came from, uh, from Jeff Kirschenbaum, the producer. And we were, we were just riding a train up to uh, Edinburgh uh, for a location scout up there. Cause there's a big section of the movie that takes place up there. And I remember that Jeff just went all in on this really, really hard, enthusiastic pitch about why exactly we should bring Han back. And Justin and I were already kind of like teetering over the edge of bringing him back. And, and, uh, and that was the push that we needed. And so it's funny because uh, bringing Han back kind of, um, you know, it, uh, it, it becomes the second set of time jumps in the movie, which was incredibly precarious to kind of write. Um, but you know, just little by little, you kind of like you you found ways to kind of make it happen. And so yeah, so we so we brought Han back, and it was like all of a sudden we were writing pages where Han was showing up in the third act, and you know he had this substantial part in the movie. All of a sudden, and I just remember it was like it was it was like it, it, you could tell that it was electric, and I and I I was so excited, you know once the decision had kind of firmly been made and they told some, you know what I mean? Like somebody reached out and they told some, Hey man, like Han's coming back for real. You know, it was just, uh, you just felt that it was kind of the right thing to do for the fans who, who had really appreciated this character. And so, uh, you know, where he goes from here, I, I don't quite know, but it, it was, uh, it was a really great feeling to bring him back because you can just tell that people authentically wanted this to happen. Was the return of Han in Justin's original treatment? no, uh, that was, it was that, and, and actually it's kind of thinking back on it, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's wild how late the decision was made because I think that we were only about maybe three months out from shooting, you know, and it, and to make a decision that drastic, you know, three months out from shooting a movie as expensive as Fast 9, you know, that's a, that's like a major, you know, it's a major disruption to kind of throw in. So, you know, the, um, uh, uh, the, you know, the drafts got turned around really quickly. I remember as soon as we made the decision to bring Han back, the whole script kind of changed and we had to huddle, you know, over this thing for a good four or five days, you know, and, uh, and that's always a kind of a scary thing to do in pre-production because everybody's looking at you like, what are you doing? You know, like we, we got to lock down this location. We have to figure out this and that and so on and so forth. So it was a, it was, it was wild. It was, it was a wild ride. It was, it, there was a lot of trepidation because, Believe it or not, Justin is actually super wary about bringing characters back from the dead. And if you need proof of that, just ask him how he feels about bringing back the character of Giselle, which is played by Gal Gadot. Like now he's really worried about it because, you know, Michelle Rodriguez came back to life in movie six and now he's brought Han back. And so he was, he was, Justin was legitimately wary. He loved the whole justice for Han thing and he did want to do it. You know what I mean? It's just that um, it's, it's not that he's, 
unaware of how big of a decision that was. And so it was, it was really made very carefully. You know, Jesse Dillon, the director of American Wedding, I remember him saying that when he wrote that movie, he started with so many set pieces, comedy set pieces, that everything else would kind of whirl around uh, or collide with. And, um, yeah. you know, the action sequences in Fast, I mean, this one, we've, you know, in the car chase and, you know, in the beginning with, with John Cena's Jacob and, and Dominic and Letty, uh, we, see, we see Jacob's car go off a cliff and then get <laughs> magnetized and picked up by a plane. And then we see Dominic <laughs> and Letty bungee jump a car off a cliff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And survive. And then, of course, there's, there's the great <laughs> London cop chase scene with Dominic in, in Helen Mirren's Queenie. Do you, when you're writing the script, mm-hmm. are you writing out beat for beat each of, of, of how these car chase sequences go down? Or is it more of a decision like you have a general idea and then Justin weighs mm-hmm. in and the stunt guy weighs in, the VFX guy in the DP weigh in and you guys all, all of a sudden kind of storyboard this out. Is that the way these mm-hmm. go? Or are you literally like, hey, get a load of this. We're gonna jackknife uh, a trailer in a way that we've <laughs> never seen a trailer truck, or it's not even a trailer truck, being jackknifed before. Tell me how that whole action sequence breaks down from the screenwriting standpoint. Yeah, you know, so uh, with this one, uh, from what I understand, and, uh, you know, Chris Morgan wrote all the, you know, wrote a bulk of the movies uh, prior to me. Um, and so my understanding was that, um, was that Chris would actually uh, write them very lightly. Um, because I was hired by Justin um, Justin was looking for an enormous amount of specificity uh, this time around on the page. And I, I think that, that just had to do with, he just wanted to try it out a little bit differently. With a lot of, you know, big projects, as you know, you have a lot of, you know, really awesome people come on, come on the podcast. Um, it depends on the director, you know, and, and the director will sometimes say, don't even worry about the action scene, just write action scene, you know. Precisely. Uh, that we happens, often, yeah. in, in a screenwriting tutorial, I've heard, you know, all the time, eh, don't worry about that. They figure that out on, on yeah. set, don't even. <laughs> but still, I mean, these are elaborate sequences. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that, yeah, that wasn't the case with, with Fast 9. Um, and, and maybe it's just because Justin wanted to try it this way, this time, you know, but a, a, as you know, you know, I, I co-wrote with him. And so the way that the action scenes kind of evolved on Fast 9, you know, uh, not knowing what happened on movies previous, the, the way that they worked on this one was, um, you know, I went on this whole tangent just now about how I, I didn't pitch him on any action beats while I was trying to pitch to get the job. But as soon as I had, but as soon as I got the job and we kind of had a feel for each other's personalities, you know what I mean? And, and we had a couple of... Um, over overarching story sessions and we kind of filled out a little bit more of the narrative um we began to get really really intensely into the specifics of the action scenes very very early on and so i got the job i we did that document and then i remember justin was like we're going to try something we're going to go out into the world and we're going to do a scout and we're just going to see if we can find the most um naturally interesting places to kind of shoot 
and uh, and we'll build the action scenes around those. And that was actually how it started. Um, myself, Justin, and the producer of the movie, uh, one of the producers, uh, Clayton Townsend, um, actually just jumped. We went just you know globe trotting all over the world. And for me, you got to understand, this is like really surreal. The biggest budget of any movie I'd worked on before this was uh, uh, twenty one million dollars. You know. And, uh, and so to get the job and then all of a sudden they're like, we're going to Southeast Asia. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was wild. It was, it was really crazy. And so, uh, we wound up like in Thailand and, um, uh, we were, I forget how many miles outside of, uh, Phuket, but you know, all of those, um, those kind of towering buttes that you see in the first act action scene with the, you know, the jungles and stuff like that. Um, we went there. And we saw those and we kind of wrote out the action as best we could according to what we were seeing, you know what I mean? And so when you get into things like the car jump and yeah, I mean like the car jump is crazy. The whole movie is crazy, right? Um, because we're just, you know, we're nine movies in and we're trying to top everything that's come before. Um, we were we were kind of like wandering around looking at these like insane rock formations and these beautiful rock formations in Thailand. And that's kind of where the ideas began you know if i'm remembering correctly like with the car swing actually the first thing that came from that sequence was the landmine uh run idea and then after that and you know we take a lot of pictures and stuff like that we just kind of sit around and, and then we bring in the previs guys as well you know what i mean and i don't even remember who came up with the tarzan swing i think that i think that might have been justin himself um you know all of a sudden everybody's just giggling in the room you know and, uh, and having been there uh, because of the scouts that we did early on, I was able to kind of write for it seamlessly, you know? And so the same applies to, uh, you know, the, the, the sequences in uh, Edinburgh, you know? We had visited the town and, and as you know, you've seen the film and, and we're talking spoilers here, right? Um, the, a massive component of the action in that scene involves this kind of like insane zip, <laughs> like zip line chase, you know, where John Cena is actually not even taking the road, he's using rooftops and he's, He's, he's firing these berserko like zipline guns from rooftop to rooftop and Dom is chasing him in the car below, you know, that came from the visits uh, and the scouts that we took to Edinburgh, you know, or Edinburgh, I, I should really say it right. I've, I've been massacring four cities named the entire time, but like, um, yeah, that was, so, so that was kind of how the action worked. And so sometimes you would be drawing from ideas that you got that you were in the field while on scouts. And then, uh, you know, the other, the other side of that, the completely reverse side is, um, is that there was lots of playing with Hot Wheels actually. And, uh, and, and, you know, you can even see Andy who works stunts in the, uh, the, the second unit. Um, he would carry around a fanny pack of Hot Wheels wherever we go, you know? And so when, as, as, as we got closer to production and the scouts got bigger, you know, so we go back to Thailand, but now there's like 20 people with us and you've got stunt professionals and you've got uh, uh, Peter, the, the, the guy who was running visual effects for the film, who's this amazing genius, you know, all just sitting there in Thailand, looking at these, you know, these the, like beautiful jungles and uh, everybody just huddles around like the hood of a car and the Hot Wheels come out and we're, you know, pointing fingers at this or that cliff face, you know, that's kind of how the, uh, the action scenes, at least for this one came to life. And then my responsibility on the page was to just make sure that the script this time for, for Fast 9 actually was a blueprint for the blow by blow of each individual action scene. So if you saw it on screen, at some point I typed it or Justin typed it, <laughs> you know what I mean? 
and uh, and that's 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 kind of where all the uh, the action in this particular movie came from. It was all just kind of a real world Hot Wheel, you know, dream team imagination amalgamation kind of thing. Are the producers? I would imagine pro the producers and Justin are keen. Like, whereas Marvel has the lore of the characters and the comic books and everything in the mm -hmm. canon, they're keen on, no, 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 we can't do that stunt. We've done something like that before. We can't jump building to building because we did that a few films ago. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was tiring, you know, and and and, uh, and so, you know, getting the job, you know, to kind of write on this thing, it was kind of like, you know, trying to jump onto a moving car, you know, Justin. And Vin, you know, the thing is, I'm not talking about Vin here, but Vin was very involved as well. Um, and, and Vin's sister, Samantha, who runs his, uh, his production company with him, you know, are really, really adamant um, when it comes to discussions about what is right for this movie as opposed to what's been done before. And so I remember coming in just not having any experience with Fast at all and kind of going like, well, what if we did a thing with a train? You know what I mean? And then, and Justin would be like, dude, did you see the beginning of Fast Five? There was a train thing. And I was like, oh, okay, what about an airplane? You know what I mean? And he's like, did you see the end of Six? We did an airplane already. And so that I think, especially for Justin, especially for Justin and, um, and, and for some of the producers is really where you see, you know, is, is really where you see the, the pushing at the boundaries, you know, like you, you, every once in a while, you'll hear a critic say, well, like, this is totally unrealistic. And I'm, you know, in, in my head, I kind of go, well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're movie nine, you know? Um, and, and this is where you see the, the kind of the, 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 the push to make these kind of action scenes bigger and better with each movie, you know, this is where, you know, the, the, the next steps are constantly, you know, being made bigger and, and kind of badder uh, because nobody, nobody wants to repeat stuff that's been seen before, you know, um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a lot of ways, you know, if you go back to say, for example, like a, like a train set piece, you know, there, there are fans who love these movies and adore these movies so much that they're going to, you know, they're going to get a little bit bored, you know? So that's, uh, uh, that's, that's where that push kind of comes from. David, everybody was talking about this show last year. I may destroy you on HBO. Michaela Cole is pulling double duty here. She stars in it. She writes in it. It's set in London and her drink is spiked and she begins to question and rebuild every element of her life. You gotta see it. All episodes are now streaming on HBO Max. It's for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all other categories. Going into this, coming off of The Fate of the Furious and Hobbs and Shaw, again, it's, it's a very big franchise and it's, it's still growing. What was the feeling coming off of those films? Um, I, I will say, and I will critique right here, F9 feels levels above those movies. No disrespect to all the work involved <laughs> in them. But was there a feeling of, uh, we kind of eased back? in those previous installments and we need to do this was there any kind of feeling with that moving forward i mean again you've upped it with the stunts and you have this great brother brother rivalry again it's about family it's always been about family but it really it's a rivalry right. we haven't seen yeah um but that's a good let me th i mean you know i'll tell you that um if, if stuff like that was happening, a majority of those conversations were kind of going on above my head. Um, I'll say this, 
uh, Hobbs and Shaw, um, which I liked, was uh, was um, was was in production while we were in pre-production, which is weird to say again because you know the the release of the two movies got chopped up by the pandemic. But um, but that was that was I think a big reason why Morgan couldn't come back to write and why there was an opportunity for me to you know kind of pitch and, and get hired and and so on and so forth. Um, but I, like I will say this, you know the like. The, the, des the desire to one up all previous movies, you know what I mean? Which is just friendly competition that comes from Justin regardless. And, and, uh, and in working with him and kind of getting to watch his, you know, his, his work ethic up close, it's, it's kind of a thing to see, like, you know, just as an example, you know, sometimes screenwriters will, you know, you'll have one main job, but you'll also kind of like take another job on the side and, you know, maybe even two more. A lot of screenwriters are actually expert multitaskers. If if I had tried to take any other work while I was doing Fast Nine for the two years, you know what I mean, that that I was kind of doing it, um, I I'd, I'd have never pulled it off. You know what I mean? Because Justin is that intense. You know, and so the scripting process, uh, it, and, and I mean that with like total respect. It's just that like Justin doesn't stop working. Um, and so I you know, we were working on weekends uh, throughout the process beginning in like February 2018 when I got the job, you know, I'd, I'd go out to he, you know, his offices are in are in uh, the Pasadena area. So I'd go out there, you know, we would just work for five, six hours and, and then go home and I'd have the, you know, the rest of a kind of a normal Saturday, but he, uh, he never stops working. And, and I think that the one upsmanship is, you know, that's, that's, that's a credit to his, uh, to his personality, you know, and, and just to the way that he kind of is, he's always just looking for the bigger, better version of any idea, you know, and yeah, it's exhausting, but, um, but you get fast nine out of it. And so that's, uh, that's, that's kind of the way it went. Going to space. Yeah. That's a big decision. How did this come to be and how do you make it believable without making it seem ridiculous? Yeah, that that was one that we went back and forth on with the studio quite a bit. Uh, studio was nervous about it. Um, and then at other times they would be excited about it. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing about going to space was just that it, it was it was clear, you know, even by the way back when I got the job that this was something that fans would kind of like to see, you know, and so immediately i would say very very early on in the process justin and i were justin and i were having conversations about whether or not we wanted to do it we kind of settled into the idea that we were at least going to give it a shot you know in early drafts and so i remember i remember that uh you know the first conversations had everything to do actually with the way that uh we launched you know and who was going to go to space you know what i mean there are characters in the ensemble lineup, you know what I mean? That are very serious characters, you know what I mean? Like, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't think that Dominic Toretto should ever go to space. I don't think that Dominic Toretto, you know, per another kind of uh, internet meme that kind of caught fire, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I don't think that Dominic Toretto should ever, you know what I mean? Be in a movie with a dinosaur. You know, this is, this is a character where if you were to take Dom, and I, I think Vin would agree with this, if you were to take Dom and push him into any of the, the more humorous, you know, components of this series, that's when you really jump the shark, you know what I mean? Um, and so very early on, the, the thing, you know, we, we knew a couple of things from a, just from a kind of a, a functional approach, which is that like, it couldn't be a ground launch. There was, there's just no way to kind of do that. 
And so a couple of preliminary conversations with some NASA folks that Universal was able to put us in touch with led us to the launch that you see in the movie, which is that um, they basically take a plane as high as it can go and they blast the Pontiac, they blast the Pontiac Fiero off the top of the plane and it kind of completes the journey into outer space as opposed to trying to load a car up with that much fuel you know, and blasted off from the ground level. So, you know, these were the kind of conversations that we were narrowing in on. And, um, and the aim was always for like, I don't know, maybe like, you know, C plus physics, C, C minus physics or something like that, you know, but just something that felt tethered enough to the way that it could be done. You know what I mean? And, 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 and shot in a way that people will like with the right cast members kind of going to space, which, you know, as, as you know, having seen the movie wound up being Tyrese, and uh, and Luda and you know Chris Bridges, and uh, and I and I think that they were the, they were the right characters to kind of go to space because these are the two who kind of always held the levity of the series firmly in hand. You know what I mean? So it was just a great way to kind of like you know take a real shot at something that fans were asking for and just seeing if we could pull it off somewhat. And I, I'm I, like I'm using this loosely, but like you know somewhat realistically, you know, and. Um, and, uh, and, and, and doing it with, a, you know, with the right characters for the job. And, and so that's, that's kind of where it came from, you know, and then, you know, functionally and just kind of making it happen, we just made sure that we were having conversations with, um, with the, you know, the, the NASA folks that we were consulting with, you know, we, we, we never strayed too far away from them. And, uh, you know, uh, every once in a while, you could kind of hear them chuckle when we would pitch them ideas for how to do things, but, um, but they dug it, you know, and, uh, and so that's, that's kind of how all the space stuff came together. You're working on a, a, a number of projects. I'm curious which of these is going to be fast-tracked, which one's going into production the soonest? God, I don't know. Um, I would say that, uh, I, you, know, you know, what I'm really fired up on is I, I'm adapting the, uh, the Clifford uh, uh, Simak novel, Waystation, which is a science fiction classic. I'm adapting that for... Matt Reeves company, Sixth in Idaho for the producers there, uh, Rafi and Adam. And that one is set up at Netflix. And uh, we're a couple drafts into that one. Um, everybody's, everybody seems really happy with it. Again, I don't want to jinx the process, but, um, but that one, that one is looking like a maybe, a strong maybe. I, I try to always be pessimistic about these things, you know, because um, I've got a lot of unproduced scripts sitting around town, I can tell you that. Um, and then, uh, and then I'm actually I'm doing something that I'm really excited about with um, with the company Agbo and and for the uh, the Russo brothers, um, and that's a uh, that's an adaptation of this um, this anime. It was on it was on reruns when I was a kid called Battle of the Planets, and we're going to do a live action version of it. But the plan is actually to do more. The plan is not just to have a uh, a feature, but to build out um, a kind of a multi platform approach for it from the get go. So. I'm not just overseeing that. I'm not just writing the feature script, but I'm kind of overseeing the construction of a of a bible and uh, uh, pitches for two television shows. There's early kind of preliminary conversations about other places that it could go, like video games and things like that. And um, you know, the Agbo folks have been really great because as a writer, they're actually inviting me in on all of this stuff, and so I'm I'm kind of contributing and helping to build it. You know, whatever it's going to be from the ground up, and you know. It's it's obviously a huge project, so you never know. Um, but uh, but I'm excited about it for sure. What advice do you have for young screenwriters now breaking into the business? 
I ask this because, you know, from the moment I entered in the 90s, it's a whole different ball game. Yeah. And I'm just curious, like, for example, if you're a producer, a producer now would say you got to be more agnostic, mm-hmm. uh, meaning you can't be picky about things going on the big screen. You make it on a streaming, you make it on a streaming, hooray, celebrate it. Mm-hmm. What's your take from the screenwriting standpoint? On breaking in, um, you know, I- I've got functional advice for for how to find representation that I I could just throw you Um, and and then but then work ethic wise, the the thing that I would say actually to young screenwriters and and I'll say this only because it's a mistake that I made myself, um, I went through uh, this program called uh, called the Sundance Labs many years ago, uh, back in 2008, and I did this uh, the year after I had a a $500 feature play at uh, premiere at the slam dance film festival and it went on it played a bunch of other film festivals and i applied for the sundance lab knowing that it could be a good look and you know the the success of the the little movie prior and so i uh, i went to the sundance labs and it was it was a transformative process it was a really really great process but what the sundance labs do is they they mentor you through the process of um of of writing your follow up script and so I had had one little indie movie that kind of played the festival circuit. And I went and I wrote another movie while doing this Sundance Labs process. And the mistake that I made, because I never made, I never made the Sundance Labs film, the mistake that I made as, as a young writer, as a young director at the time, was I treated that one script, that Sundance Labs script, as the thing that I was like destined to make. And I let it hold up my life for two years. You know, I, I didn't I didn't write another script because I, I just I was so in my head about the fact that I had gone to the Sundance Labs and I I had worked with all these great mentors. You know what I mean? And and uh, you know it's it's a really amazing program. Like the actor who was doing my little test scenes with me was Jeremy Renner. You know, and um, and so it was such a good experience that. I felt emerging from the Sundance Labs that if I moved on to a different project that I would be betraying the, the script that I was supposed to make next, you know, quote unquote, you know, supposed to in the cosmic scheme of things. And if I could go back now, I would shake the shit out of my younger self and just be like, no, keep writing. You know what I mean? Spin multiple plates. If you're a young writer, don't just try one plan of approach. And I think that, and I think that young writers can can get caught up on the sanctity of Hollywood or the sanctity of the you know the the creative process or or having a vision you know what I mean to all these other like ridiculous buzzwords that get you know pushed on you when the real truth is that like the work will set you free you know what I mean write as much as possible uh, write when write when other people aren't writing you know what I mean if it's a Tuesday night and you have some friends and you if if you're in grad school or you're you're in your early 20s and you want to make movies and you have some friends that are just going to go over to somebody's apartment and kick it, don't go. Write your script. You know what I mean? If it really, really matters to you, put as much work out there and, 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 and do it as well as you possibly can while you have those years and don't get caught up on something as your end-all, be-all, you know, way into Hollywood because what you expect will disappoint you. But a, but a solid work ethic and, and a little bit of timing, that, that will see you home. And then as far as the, and this was true years ago, even in the 80s and the 90s, the first people to read, to cover your script, usually young kids. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
readers well, about your age. Yeah. Or younger, assistants. younger, like, <laughs> you know, like twenties. Uh, I don't want to yeah. reveal too much about my age, but yeah, like way younger. Um, you're, you're 27, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to break it right here on the podcast. What my age is. Um, the, 26, um, 24. Okay. Yeah. Like, was there ever a concern, you know, you're, you're trying to get a manager and of course they're only going to be downloaded on whatever someone else is reading. Yeah. You know, it's not until maybe the assistant shakes them and says, you got to read this mm-hmm. it's by Nicholas winding Refid. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But is there ever any concern that maybe something gets lost or this is going to go over someone's head or something to that effect? Like if you're, you're writing a hybrid genre and no one's getting, is there ever any, is it just, no, just write what you love. If they like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. I feel like, I feel like that's it. What you just said there, because the thing is, is that, um, and this is, this is again, I, I like, I'm incredibly idiosyncratic and I, I, I've got like OCD and you know what I mean? Like I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I, I have, I, I'm generally a person with like a lot of anxiety. <laughs> um, and so I have, I had points early on in my career where, where I had made a sale or two or set up a script, um, you know, and, or, or optioned it somewhere. And, and so, you know, a couple of years later now down the road from, from the Sundance story, I just told you, I'm like, I'm barely into Hollywood and I'm kind of getting my first gigs. And I, I remember that I had a couple of times where I was like, I'm going to write something that's going to sell, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and for some reason, that's always just the stuff that blows up in your face, you know, or those, those are the types of moves because then you can really freak yourself out. You know, if you're like looking at what's out there and you're kind of trying to match that. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that as a screenwriter, we should we should try to be inaccessible to 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 uh, audiences. That's that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that, like, the idea should always come from a, the idea should always come from like the pit of your stomach. You know what I mean? Like like that idea that it just feels right you know, to kind of get on paper. And, uh, and for me, the script that kind of got me in was this thing called, uh, called Jimmy Six. And it was this kind of just grimy little, you know, crime story from the neighborhood in Detroit where I'm from. I'm from a neighborhood called, uh, called Hamtramck and uh, it's huge kind of multi-ethnic melting pot. And I just told this story about this, this, uh, this kind of 20 something year old wannabe who had this dad that was this big bad gangster. And he was just, our, you know, this young guy was never going to stack up to his dad. And essentially, emotionally, that's what it was about. And, and I remember that while I was writing it, it, it was, you know, you use the crime genre or whatever genre you're working in as a proscenium, you know what I mean, to tell your story. But um, I just, I, I felt like I was critiquing myself, you know, as I was living in a garage behind the guitar center on Sunset Boulevard at the time. And I was just kind of, you know what I mean, not really sure what was going to happen to me. And, um, and so I just kind of took that and I, and, and I used it as the basis for a kind of a, you know, a real straightforward genre entry about a, about a, you know, shitty criminal who decides that he's not actually that good at it by the end of the movie. And, and, uh, and that was the script bizarrely that went all around town and got a bunch of great reads. Um, and so I, I would always encourage a younger writer to kind of take what they know, um, take a few baby steps. You know what I mean? Like there was a reason why I wrote it as a crime movie and not a, you know, a Dogma 95, you know, uh, experiment. Um, but, uh, but definitely right from the heart. 
And if, 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 uh, if you're feeling pressure to write a movie like Star Wars because Star Wars is possible, I'm, I'm telling you, you're gonna hit a wall because it's, there are so many other people who want to do that. Star Wars already exists. Nobody's looking to replace it. You know what I mean? So to any writer, any young writer, I would just say, do you, you know? And, uh, and, and who you are will kind of set you free. I think that people can pick up on that when they read scripts. Daniel Casey, thank you so much. I'll thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.